Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It's a big week. Parliament's back in session. Beach bars in Crete are bemoaning the absence of cabinet ministers. And here to flag up what's coming up is our regular panellist, Alex Andreo. Morning, Alex. How are you? Morning, Andrea. I'm all right. Good to hear it. The government is coming back to multiple arguments. The national insurance hike to raise funds for social care and the NHS, the fight on the £20 universal credit raise, which is due to expire, and of course, Afghanistan. Opposition on pretty much all of these is, is weirdly being led by Tories. What sort of a week is Boris Johnson in for, do you think? Um, a difficult one, which which is why um, those issues, especially the national insurance one, have been flown as kites a little bit last week. You know, they've been briefed to the press, but ministers have been saying, oh, I can't possibly comment on a leak in order to sort of gauge reaction and I'm sure adjust things as this week unfolds. So let, let's take them one by one. Let's do that national insurance hike first, which is getting all the uh, attention this morning. Johnson is supposed to be announcing an extra $5.5 billion this year for the NHS. As you say, cabinet ministers are privately attacking it for loading the costs onto young people in working age and leaving older voters out. He is explicitly breaking a manifesto pledge here. You know, The grandees, Philip Hammond, John Major and Ken Clark, have warned about a very significant backlash. Does it matter that Boris Johnson is breaking a manifesto pledge when he breaks all of his other pledges too. Mm. Look, can we start by reframing this not as old people versus young people? Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, that is one generalised way of putting it, but it's not actually entirely fair. National insurance is hugely regressive because it actively targets those who have to work for a living. Plenty of older people still work, um, and Plenty of younger people are independently wealthy and don't have to work or are landlords and derive their income from sort of different sources. So uh, the reason it's regressive is because it targets those who have to work for a living, those who have other income streams and those who are rich enough to not have to work, whatever age they happen to be. It's also a clear-cut breach of a manifesto pledge. Backbenchers, I think, might feel that gives them the right to rebel over it because they can always point to the manifesto and say, it's not us not supporting the government's program, it's the government changing the program under which it got elected. The Tories may feel that the the emergency of the pandemic gives them enough political cover. Against that fact is 
the money not being is not being raised to fix something that relates to the pandemic, but social care, which was in trouble before any of this, and about which the the prime minister said he had a plan ready to go two years ago on the steps of Downing Street. So that ready-to-go plan must have included some notion of how it might be funded, right? So how did he plan to fund it before the emergency of the pandemic? We keep being told Brexit would make us richer. We're also being told the economy is bouncing back faster than any other economy, and we're doing very nicely, thank you. So why is there a need for a permanent hike rather than short-term borrowing, you know, why is this linked to an emergency? And I don't think anyone has made the government really answer those questions. You know, why are you raising this extraordinary amount of money for something that you said you already had a plan? How did you plan to fund it before? If it was always by raising national insurance, then you lied on your manifesto. This has nothing to do with a pandemic. It has nothing to do with any emergency. You cynically told a lie in your, man- in your manifesto in order to get elected, knowing you would break your word after being elected. If you've planned to fund it some other ways, tell us how and why is that not viable anymore? I think that is a difficult, difficult question. The likes of Rhys Mogg have been linking this to other famous breaches of commitments. George H.W. Bush's infamous read my lips, no new taxes. As I say, the uh, opposition to this is is coming often from hugely influential uh, Tory sources. Johnson seems to have pissed off even his real boss, The Telegraph. Do you think that, I mean, we, we've sat on this podcast waiting for when is when, it, when is it going to be a lie too far for a very long time. Do you think something like this, which affects millions of people in work, could be that thing? Look, look, it might be that thing. I don't think voting works in that way. I don't think, you know, at some point it's a drip too far and people change their mind. I think people feel the effect of policies in their real life. And if, you know, the end of the five years or whenever the next election is called comes and they feel they are not better off, they feel they didn't level up, they feel, you know, they were lied to, then that's the basis on which they will make their decision. The opposition coming from Tories is significant, but it is equally significant the fact that Labour have indicated they will not support the government on any of this, because often the government has had to rely on support from the opposition. And that, in many, many ways, disempowers uh, revolt from their backbenches. Because, you know, there's a reason to uh, vote against the government if you think you might win. There is little reason to vote against the government if you if you know you're going to lose, because then you're just sort of spoiling your relationship with the front bench for no reason whatsoever. But if Labour are not supporting these, then that makes the size of the backbench revolt quite significant. Do you think that this uh, amounts then to kind of the end of the, the, the pandemic truce, as it were, with the opposition not opposing particularly uh, vociferously? Yes, I think this week very much signals a, a return to 
ordinary politics, you know, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, you know, we're suddenly talking about tax, we're talking about social care, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about the bread and butter of government policy, instead of exclusively about vaccinations or things like that. And so, yes, um, I think it's a return to proper government policy, and I think it's a difficult one at that. Around the margins on this, it's revealed lots of sort of interesting, strange oddments about about the, the funding of the NHS and social care. Westminster can't raise national income tax on this because Scotland's got its own powers over uh, income tax. And a large part of the public mistakenly think that social care is free at the point of use like NHS services are, and it, and, and it, just, it just isn't. Do you think that part of these problems go back to people still after, what is it, you know, 60, 70 years, not really understanding that national insurance isn't actually an insurance scheme, that it is just another tax? Well, look, it, it is an insurance scheme, albeit with a, a sort of flat thing that you have to pay um, as well. The problem, I think, actually, I'm going to say, if you look at it more as an insurance scheme, if you look at it more as a pension scheme, then it becomes clear what the problem is. Because the problem is that all the people who are meant to be receiving the benefits of national insurance in their old age, they cannot be covered, which must mean that either we didn't collect enough money from them while they were working, or that that money has been mismanaged. So if you were hearing about this and it was some private company involved and its you know its pension scheme had gone belly up you'd be quite straightforward about who's to blame right you would say you know you promised these people x took their money over their entire working life and now you're unable to provide x which means you mismanaged it or it was never viable to start with it might be useful to to ask those questions because we are at the moment taxing those who have to work for a living, like I said, or proposing to tax them more in order to fund the care of people who are no longer working, which means that we are not fixing the long-term problem. You know, when the people who are working today will come to be retired, the money that we've collected from them won't be enough to look after them. Like the extra money we're collecting for them is to pay for something else, exactly. which is the, the care of people already retired. Well, it's not an insurance scheme because the revenue is spent. It's mm. not placed in a mythical imaginary pot with your name next to it. It's spent this year. Also, as part of this, uh, is a, a little extra bit in the ongoing Johnson-Sunak Cold War. Sunak wants the raise explicitly linked to social care so it doesn't get swallowed up by the NHS. Is it likely that he's going to get his way? Probably not. I don't think it's up to him, if I'm hmm. honest. I think that will depend on the health secretary and the secretary for the Department of Work and Pensions. So those are the two people who are going to fight the battle for this budget and to try to ring-fence it for their own department. So we shall see. Another little uh, sideshow on this is in the inklings of uh, a cabinet reshuffle in the autumn, which that we mentioned last week. Latest hot tip is Rob out at the Foreign Office to be replaced, says The Guardian, by Liz Truss. That is yeah. a disgrace. Are you, are you putting any money on that? Let's see what happens because there is the re-emergence of the notion of vaccine passports this week. Mm. 
Now, why do I mention that? It doesn't seem related to any of this. I think it is. Um, so the idea of vaccine passports had largely gone away, and the idea of a reshuffle had gone completely quiet, really, for weeks. I hadn't heard anything about a reshuffle, actually, for months, since the beginning of summer. So at the moment the government is facing difficulty about a big piece of legislation like raising national insurance, suddenly these things emerge, one of which becomes a bargaining chip with backbenchers, vaccine passports, because we know they hate them, and one of which becomes a bargaining chip with frontbenchers like Jacob Rees-Mogg, which is the reshuffle. And my notion is that these things have re-emerged purely so that the government has a little bit of leeway to make deals with people, to say, look, if you support this national insurance thing, we'll junk the vaccine passports bit, and to make ministers' spines stiffen up a little bit by saying, there's a reshuffle coming, are you sure you want to be briefing the media against our policy? I take it very seriously, but I don't think it's about what they say it is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk about that vaccine passport for a minute. The nighttime industries associations say they could cripple the industry and actually put clubs at risk of discrimination cases if they refuse admission for a lack of a vaccine passport. Setting aside the, uh, the Machiavellian aspect that you've just described, if we imagine that it actually is a real policy and names that has, has committed the government to it, has enough preparation gone into selling this to the public, do you think? Will young people in particular wear it? The problem is that the general uh, attitude towards COVID is relaxing. And so the things that may have been palatable and doable during a period where the public feels a genuine sense of emergency will not fly now. Obviously, this is not statistically significant, but being on public transport in the last week, there is a marked difference in the number of people wearing a mask, in the way people pack into train carriages. You know, people are visibly much more relaxed about the pandemic. To try and force them into a vaccine passport situation when they are becoming so much more relaxed about the pandemic, I think will be a problem for the government. But like I said, I don't think it's a serious proposal. Does the government have a handle on this? They seem to be simply ignoring it. No, they have they have zero handle on this. Um, and the police are ignoring it. And I don't know why. It breaches several of the regulations that were introduced uh, about the pandemic. There was a... a, a a sort of vaccine bus outside Victoria Station last week, and there were people leafleting those waiting in the queue with just outrageous lies on leaflets that this is going to kill you and, you know, more people die from the vaccine than COVID-19. I mean, nonsense, absolute nonsense. And the police were there. There were two policemen there 
and they were doing nothing about it. You know, if these people had showed up to, I don't know, mourn a, a victim of a, a, a misogynistic murder or protest the climate emergency, they'd have been bundled into a van quickly enough. If I turned up with leaflets saying, drink bleach, it's good for acne, I'd have been bundled into a van. So I don't know why the, the entire state apparatus seems to be ignoring this clear and present danger to society. Back into Parliament for a couple of things. The £20 universal credit row is back. Marcus Rashford is urging the government to keep the rise, which expires in October. Labour are expected to force a vote on it on Wednesday. Labour is saying uh, that the call will take £2.5 billion from local economies in the Northern Midlands, including a billion from red wall seats. And even benefits hard man Steve Baker is against it. What do you think is uh, likely to happen with the universal credit top-up? Oh, it's It's a crazy policy, OK? Because... At a time when you're trying to stimulate the economy and you're pumping absolute billions into it in all kinds of subsidies and schemes, to take away a thing that puts an extra 20 quid in the pockets of the poorest people, money which is spent straight away right into their communities and benefits other people, benefits other businesses, is taxed, is you know creates VAT, it's crazy. That this is being presented as a thing that will force people not in work to look for work more actively is nonsense. 39.8% of claimants of universal credit, this is England uh, DWP data, by the way, from June 2021. So 40% of claimants basically are employed. Now, the Tories claim this was always a temporary thing to help people through the crisis of the pandemic, but I have not heard any credible argument of why X amount of quid was not enough to live on at a time people were confined to their homes, but is enough to live on now after everything reopens. I don't get that. I don't think they have answered that question. You put that together, you put that drop in universal credit together with the rise in national insurance, and it becomes a double whammy for someone on minimum wage earning, let's say, 10K a year. They will lose the up uplift in their universal credit and be hit by that national insurance rise. And it's a disaster for precisely the areas the Tories claim to be levelling up. But let's get on to much more important things like fake voting. The infamous elections bill gets its second reading. The yeah. uh, requirement for photo ID, massively important, obviously, because we have such a huge, huge, huge problem of voter fraud in this country. A series of charities and campaigners coordinated by Naomi, our own Naomi from Best of Britain. Uh, they're calling the bill an attack on the UK's proud democratic tradition and some of our most fundamental rights. Labour's going to vote against the elections bill. What do you think is likely to happen this week? And it, look, and the headline story has been about the introduction of mandatory voter ID. And that's obviously been very, very well covered by traditional media. But buried in the detail are clauses which criminalise stuff that is fundamental to fair and free elections. So the government claims the elections bill will protect our elections from foreign interference, which sounds good. But in reality, the bill makes it easier for tax exiles to make political donations to give you an idea, the governing Conservative Party accepted more than one million from UK citizens living in tax havens ahead of the 2017 general election, which was the data I looked at, even despite existing barriers. 
And instead of tightening those loopholes, the new law will remove what barriers there are. So people basically can just donate from anywhere in the world. The bill also lets the Secretary of State, the relevant Secretary of State, currently Michael Gove, to decide the definition of what sort of campaigning is allowed a year before the election. So it imposes limits on campaigners, charities, and individuals carrying out activity together if it's considered to be, and I quote from the bill, intended to achieve a common purpose. And it's up to Michael Gove to decide what that means. And the the uh, offences it creates for that are all the way up to criminal. If I book a meeting room with two other charities and we want to drive, let's say, voter registration, Michael Gove can unilaterally decide that that breaches the rules of the elections bill. It's even better than that, Alex. He can decide retrospectively. Oh, yes. Absolutely. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. If you've had a meeting with no election on the horizon and a snap election is called, Michael Gove can decide that your meeting uh, fell foul of the law and you have then committed a criminal act. So, for instance, we often talk about progressive alliance. It's it's a sort of favourite topic of discussion on this and our sister podcast. Is me trying to encourage uh, other people to vote uh, in a particular way on social media, is that campaigning which is designed, is intended to achieve a common purpose? It seems to me it is. Well, I mean, obviously the elections bill is going to be a huge one for the autumn. We we will be keeping an eye on this. A couple of other things to look out for this week before we wrap up. Obviously, it will be impossible to miss the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we'll be discussing that in uh, in the panel show. It it could Mm. not be happening at a more dismal and embarrassing time in, in the light of Afghanistan. Do you expect politicians to simply steer clear of this? Yes, I think there is a sense that uh, the West has lost this one. And there is a sense that I think people should be left uh, to lick their own wounds. I don't think anyone's claiming, you know, the intervention was a huge success, you know, other than its very original aims and its very original intervention in Afghanistan. I think the nation building that was meant to follow has gone disastrously badly wrong because, you know, what was built proved to be unarguably a house of cards that collapsed the moment um, military presence from the West was not there to support it. And so I think it will be a time of somber reflection and a time maybe to begin to look at the existence of uh, radicalism in our own societies. Um, one thing that will probably uh, continue to fill the news pages will be the debate around the horrifically draconian abortion regulations in Texas. Abortion is effectively banned as few women know that they are pregnant at six weeks, which is the cutoff time. Mm. So within inside Texas, it's almost impossible to get an abortion. And the public has been deputised to report women for uh, supposedly uh, contravening these laws. It's led to the terms Texas Taliban and time to mess with Texas appearing and other states are expected to adopt similar Gilead-style measures in a run-up to a a challenge to Roe versus Wade. Sonia Sotomayor, the dissenting judge uh, in that, the dissenting opinion in that Supreme Court, 
decision de- mm. described it as a breathtaking act of defiance of the constitution and i think she's right because it it essentially says that women are not worth the protection of federal law incidentally i'm not sure it's a smart thing i think texas has been a state in which demographics have been changing um steadily and rapidly each election becomes a closer and closer one texas seems to me a state that may be about to flip democrat and the introduction of legislation like this uh i think is going to do the republicans a lot of damage because it will basically it has the potential to unite half the electorate in that state to just say no to them so the midterm elections um will be interesting to watch in texas i don't know if they're they they're probably electing some uh, congress people and some senators i saw a great cartoon flying around at the weekend that said welcome to texas where viruses have reproductive rights and women don't <laughs> that is bitterly bitterly awful isn't it now to wrap up i know you wanted to talk about the really 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 big issue of the week will brillo return to gbb's andrew neil went absent <laughs> from gb news after only two weeks in its sporadically lit studio is he coming back alex he's sitting there desperate Someone remarked really beautifully that Andrew Neil is now in the third month of his two-week holiday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we should make uh, a Where's Brillo cartoon with uh, you know a huge crowd with Andrew Neil hiding in it. I don't know, and I don't care. Um, to be honest, the one thing that riled me over the weekend is a, a sort of concerted effort from fellow journalists, especially former colleagues at the BBC to say oh but you know poor andrew he's a terrific journalist as if you know he he's some naive babe that wandered into the wrong part of town by accident and was beset by fascists i'm sorry but that's nonsense gb news had a really explicit agenda from its inception which was to make money out of division that's what it was set up to do it advertised this fact and it had andrew neil attached from the very start so he took a business risk and he stood to make a whole load of money if this had gone right the fact that it went wrong regrettable as it is for his bank balance is to be celebrated by the rest of the same world and anyone who says to me that poor andrew is a terrific journalist i would ask them this had gb news been a roaring instant success would he be leaving i don't think he would be the first week when the you know when the viewing figures were coming in he was crowing about them online he'd be there crowing about them still if this hadn't turned into a shit show but it did he's a mercenary he's a mercenary distancing himself from a failure it's what they do and that's the end of start your week for this week alexandreo thanks for joining us thank you for having me 
listeners, thanks for listening. If you found this podcast useful, then why not do us a favour and forward the link to three friends? We're asking our listeners to spread the word on behalf of The Bunker. And there is something new coming up this weekend as well. On Saturday, we've got a brand new Culture Bunker edition for the weekend starting. We're going to be looking at music, TV, films, books and more in what they're all calling The Guardian Guide to The Bunker's main daily paper. There'll be some familiar faces on it and some new ones too, including possibly Alex in the near future. There's no need to do anything. It'll appear in your app as usual and we hope you'll like it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.